Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome, everyone, to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Uh, this week, we have uh, Dr. Stelios uh, Kampakis. I'm probably like many British people, didn't do your name full justice, but <laughs> doctor, thank you very much for joining us. And we're here to talk about your book. It just uh, came out with a second edition, The Decision Maker's Guide to Data Science. Uh, thanks very much for joining us to talk about your book. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, uh, wh- why why is it that decision makers uh, should care about data science? Well, I think data science and AI are very important topics because I mean they just play larger, larger roles in our lives. Okay. Uh, I think this is clear. Um, if you see graphs around the investment in, in AI, whether it's like startups or uh, funds spent by governments um, in, a, in, like in many different ways, you'll see that this is just a trend that keeps going up and up and up and up. I think in 2019, the uh, AI startups received about $30 billion in funding, and this is going higher and higher. And we're also really witnessing an AI arms race by the by the you know, by the strongest countries in in the world, and obviously this you know doesn't leave any industry unaffected. It doesn't leave any, any company unaffected. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about small companies, big companies. Uh, it's it's uh, it's there. You know, it's something that it's there. And uh, sooner or later, uh, like pretty much, you know, like it's like social media, right? So people. When they first exposed to social media, you have you had some early adopters, and now every company needs to be on social media because there are so many people there. It's a it's a bit like this with AI. It's just that it, it can provide an unfair advantage to any company that's using it the right way. Uh, so sooner or later, you know, you have to care. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was talking to my boss, the CEO of Williot. Uh, about the fact that you were coming on the show and he was, he's based in Israel, amazing entrepreneur, um, really uh, um, has done an amazing job of uh, many things, uh, but uh, including getting funding for our company, uh, have some great investors. Um, and he pointed out that in Israel, which is kind of this 
incredible uh, uh, powerhouse in terms of startups. That data science is the hot uh, topic. It's the it's the kind of the one of the most sought after skills. Um, but can you point to companies where data science has been? You know, a significant factor in their success. Uh, the the uh, kind of the, the world leading, uh, the world leaders out there. I mean, there are countless examples, right? Depends on the industry. One of the earliest examples uh, in the United Kingdom, where I live, uh, was Tesco's, uh, where they started using analytics. Uh, like all the other supermarket chains, had to also do so because uh, they were just so successful in. Uh, you know, using analytics, and this was like the early days of this club cards and all that stuff, which now we, we it's a given, right? Um, if you're talking about sports, I guess the most famous example is uh, Oakland uh, Ace, uh, the whole approach of uh, Moneyball. So that's another like great movie. famous, great movie. Yeah, exactly, great movie, and uh, totally, and uh, great, great actors as well. And so th these are some, let's say prominent examples, but then it's it's um, it really comes down to, to the industry. I guess the most impressive examples are, not the most impressive, like the, the, the examples that people will resonate more most closely with will be things like Netflix, Amazon, uh, every like every, every time you're using a service like this, you see a recommender system, right? It's uh, also Google, Facebook, like everything in there has been chosen by AI. By AI. It's not like all the content is created by AI. Uh, then again, that's, this might not be as flashy cases, and that's one thing that uh, AI data science can improve efficiency in many ways, but uh, it's not always as impressive as you know seeing a robot, for example. Robots are pretty impressive, but uh, AI is a bit like, uh, let's say, operating systems. It's uh, super useful, uh, but it's cool only if you're a geek, really, or <laughs> if you're a data scientist. Yeah. Most people just see the end result, and over the years, we take it as a given that, you know, Amazon's delivery works really well, and we don't even think how much AI is involved in the whole supply chain and, and robotic process automation and all that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me of the life of Brian, the, you know, what have the Romans done for us? And I think about, well, what has data science done for... Uh, Companies, and then you look at well, apart from Google and Facebook and Netflix, <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, I was just trying to think whether Apple is is uh, is data science critical to Apple. I guess they have Siri. That's uh, that's probably not the centre yeah. of their success. But would you say that data science has been helpful to them? Uh, well, Apple, yeah, it has Siri. I, I know it's investing. I know it is investing heavily in AI, but it's behind in the AI arms race because it has this mentality that everything needs to be closed and uh, like Aver has realized that it's not how it works because it, it, it's such a difficult problem trying to replicate human intelligence. Uh, and uh, I think he has only recently started to publish some research. It's, it's very secretive. Um, yeah. So I think it's, if you compare it like, like Google, Microsoft, they're, you know, like years ahead of, of, of anyone else, you know, Amazon is also very, very strong. I mean, the platform providers are, are fueling it, aren't they? Because they're providing these machine learning algorithms that you can use. So I think Apple certainly has been uh, pushing uh, uh, machine learning, designing it into their their chips and uh, and so forth. But maybe we should take a step back and just define what what is data science. <laughs> so we should do that probably before we. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, when I, when sometimes when I run presentations, when I run workshops, that's the if a question I like to ask my audience: What is data science? And uh, you see, some people are like, uh, <laughs> like well, that's so interesting. Like everyone's talking about it, not many people can define it. And that's the same thing with many, um, you know, with many difficult concepts, right? So it's, uh, I think you you see, you you see this a lot across. Uh, maybe even the centuries. This sounds too too big, but but it's true. It's like uh, um, sometimes science. You know, there are like concepts and words created in science, and then society uses them, but they don't really understand them. I'd say that you know, if if we look sixty, seventy years in the past, probably physics was the most popular. Let's say science, and uh, everyone abused and they still abuse uh, energy. You know, energy in physics is quite well defined, but people are like, oh, energy this and energy that and whatever. This, this computer science is the most popular science. People abuse all kinds of concepts, you know. <laughs> uh, so the thing with data science is that it gets uh, confused a lot with AI and machine learning. And really, data science is just an umbrella term, which is used to bring together many different fields, which showed up over the last 200 years, uh, with similar goals, either to analyze data or to replicate human intelligence. And uh, people started using this term to unify all these efforts and also make it easier to sell, really, to sell, to sell services. Uh, so AI is actually more academic work because this was the original, uh, you know, discipline. Let's say 1956 in, in, in Carnegie Mellon. This is where it was born, and and, and, uh, and Dartmouth College as well. Uh, and IBM, these were the, the three main uh, players. And uh, then machine learning was is basically one approach to AI, which has been pop popular since the 90s, and it's by far the most popular approach. Uh, and deep learning is a subset of AI, but I think data science helps bring everything together. I guess as, as, as the industry becomes more familiar with data science, uh, you'll hear the word AI, the term AI being used more and more, uh, simply because it just sounds cooler, really. Uh, this pisses many researchers off, but I've personally come to accept as a fact of life that this is how the world works, you know, through uh, buzzwords and jargon. <laughs> but what is your, the shortest definition for data science? If you had, like, uh, an elevator that is where the cables have been cut and it's plummeting down the shaft and someone says, <laughs> what, what is data science? Then how would you define it before you hit the ground? I, I think I would have enough time to answer this question because <laughs> the way I define it when I, uh, at least that's what I say in my workshops, is to simply use data to do useful stuff. That's just it, you know, because if you if you break it down and you see like all, all its constituent parts and all the different fields, uh, that's basically the common thread, you know? I love it. That is a fantastic definition. I would die feeling happy that, uh, oh, I learned something today. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, your very last moment. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, it, it encompasses all those things that you mentioned, artificial intelligence, and this is like the Russian doll, you peel the artificial intelligence, but it seems like machine learning is a subset of that, and deep learning is a subset of that. But then we have statistics as well, which I guess sits, uh, sits, uh, sits, sits alongside it. Um, but that sort of orientates us and, and back to my establishing uh, set of questions. Um, so decision makers hand, handbook uh, to data science is, is aimed at decision makers. Who do you think of as decision makers? Uh, is it just CEOs or? 
<laughs> so decision maker can be anyone from a solo entrepreneur to a manager within a bigger organization or, uh, or you know, this doesn't have to be upper management. This can also be uh, someone who's influential within a group within an organization. So I've worked like with entrepreneurs, with startups, with scale-ups, and I've also worked uh, <coughs> with, uh, let's say, people who were in an analytics team and they were planning to expand and, and they were just looking to understand a bit better how they could transition from simple analytics to AI machine learning. So data science, the, the decision maker in this in this case uh, is like the, the broad definition of a decision maker. Yeah. Uh, and obviously someone, you know, could also talk about politics, etc. But uh, my book is not so much for the public sector, it's more for, for companies. Yeah, so there's many, many decision makers, especially nowadays in companies where we're supposed to be empowering them, then it gets flatter and flatter. And hopefully we have uh, almost all of us are decision makers in uh, some ways in a company that really empowers its, uh, its workers. Um, um, I was kind of jealous when I looked at the fact, so we have the same publisher, A-Press, and uh, my book, uh, oh. Beacon Technologies, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Beaker System, I've got to plug my book, um, is, is a lot less readable than your book, uh, because your book is like approximately okay. 150 pages, and mine started off as 700, and then they used a bigger book format, and that got it down to 500. And I realized, uh, so I want to compliment you, because it's very, very readable, and uh, uh, it, uh, it really pulls you into this. And it seems like you... I, I, one of the questions I had was, what changed between the first edition and the second edition that has has just come out? Oh, there were a few more use cases, a few more uh, tools at the end of the book, uh, which can which helps decision makers to implement data science. I mean, I wanted to make the book very readable and not long on purpose because I'm like, if you're a decision maker, you're looking for information, not for something to, to read, you know, while you're on holiday. Um, so this was done on purpose. It's for the same reason that every time I was running workshops, I was trying to be efficient. Yes. Uh, it wasn't so yes. much as to two, it was like a two week session. It was like a day session. My next book is going to be, is going to be longer. It's about a hundred thousand words, but uh, that's more for the general public, you know, that uh, just wants to read the book to learn more about data science and also pass the time. <laughs> Yeah, it struck me. I mean, there was a lot of you make it very practical. So you kind of bring it back to um, uh, nuts and bolts of, uh, of businesses. And uh, I you do consulting as well. Is that how much did your consulting kind of inform the book? Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm also uh, running uh, a company for and that helps uh, businesses and helps individuals design the right data strategy and not just data strategy all the soft it handles all the soft parts of data science like culture hiring uh, etc uh, and and uh, this and basically this this book uh, is really was based on the work that i had done with the test Art academy uh, over the last uh, two three years or so right so it was based on my workshops the conversations i had so it's like the, the best parts, the, the, the most useful parts <laughs> yeah. for a decision maker. Interesting. And then, the, yeah, then also consult, yeah. But, but yeah. Uh, the, uh, no, that's interesting that it came from that. I, um, my book came from the same place. I was consulting and uh, training people. I'm like, oh, really need to write this stuff down. And then it just ballooned. But you've, 
kept it um, to a point where people can really uh, absorb it and get a lot out of it. That one of the pet peeves I have, it's, you know, when something's successful, maybe it's because I grew up in England and whenever something's successful, then I immediately look at it with suspicion. Um, and data science has been very uh, successful. And one of the responses that I hear uh, entrepreneurs talking about is, yes, we're going to make money on the data. We've got to accumulate as much data as we can. It's all about the, the data. And in which is fine, I guess, but um, it, it, it's also kind of uh, frustrating because there seems to be a lack of ability to answer the second question, which is, well, what is this data going to be used for and, and so forth? How, how uh, do you see the same thing? Are people just like jumping on the data bandwagon and, and how do they get in trouble? How do people get in trouble? Maybe this is a better question. How do people get in trouble when they try and pursue data uh, as, as a key part of their uh, entrepreneurial business strategy? I mean, there are many ways someone can get in trouble when they try to adopt data science. Uh, and uh, one of the ways this happens is the not, not having a data strategy in place and just accumulating data and then be like, oh, I'm going to deal with this later once you know, I get a data scientist to do it for me. Uh, and uh, this is where usually things go wrong when you realize that uh, the data is not in the right format, the right variables are not there, etc., etc. Uh, I'd say data science, I mean, it's good to be skeptical, but I'd say data science had the long time to prove itself because, you know, statistics as a discipline has been around for 200 years uh, or so. Uh, so it's like, you know, and, and then we had AI and machine learning, and now it's been used in so many different things. So it's not like uh, data science came out of the blue. Uh, it's, I think it took a long time to prove itself. But, but, but there's still some people who are skeptics, I mean, even in the industry. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'd say it's, it's different than cryptocurrencies, which have only started to prove themselves very recently. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely not arguing that uh, there's nothing there. There's, you, you just, the examples you cited at the beginning uh, are proof that uh, there's value. I, the thing that I object to is just kind of... Uh, an adoption of it without the uh, realistic, well-aligned goals and uh, having thought through beyond it's all about the data. I kind of feel like blockchain's a little bit like that. It, it sort of gets the technology a bad name when people don't do it well and the, the, there's kind of failures because of that. And maybe the answer is just to, uh, um, to buy your book. I, I thought one of the really interesting sections uh, is uh, you talk about how to lie with statistics, so I think maybe I'm not uh, capturing that as well, but uh, uh, you had a great example of uh, showing this correlation between, um, or maybe you can remind me, there's a film star and uh, uh, their habits, and uh, help, help me out here. Uh, yeah, there, there are many ways to lie with statistics or data. The problem with, uh, let's say, the, the data science, the problem with statistics is that uh, these me methods from these disciplines, they use to make up stories because data is always interpreted and communicated. And there's some degree of arbitrariness, uh, not in every case, but in many cases. And I think you see this a lot in economics, in finance, in politics, uh, in election polling, 
Uh, and there's just many ways to do this, right? I'd say graphs is the most obvious way to do this. I think graphs lie all the time. Uh, it's just the way things are. But you also see more subtle ways of doing this. Uh, like in, in uh, research, for example, sometimes you see tests which maybe they're using the wrong way, uh, these sort of things. And sometimes language statistics can be purely intentional. As you might see, in, it happens in, you know, again, in politics uh, a lot. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's unintentional, as you might see in, in uh, research. Uh, for example, research in, sometimes you see research in medicine, biology, and there might be some subtle issues with the methods used. And it's just very difficult to, you know, to detect this unless someone actually uh, is really looking for them. It's just the way things are, you know, it's, it's good to be a bit uh, cautious about every new technology, every new shiny thing, and I think it's good to, you know, it's good to be optimistic, but, you know, one of the worst mistakes you can make with technology is to believe that you're immune to, to error because you're using some kind of new fast technology. And data science and can often give to, to someone a false, uh, let's say, perception of, being, uh, you know, invulnerable, of, of uh, being impossible to make a mistake because you're using this new fancy method. Uh, so that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know, when you see some decision makers who think that it's only human judgment that can work. Go with your guts, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think both extremes are, are not very good, you know. <laughs> okay. I, I found it in your book, so I'm going to help myself out here. So the, what you do is you correlate the number of people drowning by falling into swimming pools with the number of films that Nicolas Cage has appeared in. And you show the graph, which shows a real correlation between uh, Nicolas Cage driving the, 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 the drownings in swimming pools, which I thought was, uh, uh, was very funny. Um, which obviously, website, just to make it clear, you're not actually saying that Nicolas Cage is killing people. <laughs> that, uh, that, that's uh, just an illustration. Yeah, there's a website dedicated to this, uh, basically. There's a website dedicated to this that finds funny correlations and it presents them. And it's all, all you know, all this kind of like, for example, how many, uh, you know, how, how much butter is consumed in, I don't know, in Arizona and that correlates with how many people die of skiing accidents in Switzerland. Like, totally insane things. <laughs> But, 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 you know, this is funny until you realize that uh, the same thing might have actually ha caused the financial crisis. I mean, it wasn't the only reason, but, for example, if you work in finance and you're trying to find, uh, you're doing portfolio optimization and you're trying to find a series which are correlated uh, or uncorrelated, then you might come up with all kinds of good relationships. Because if you have thousands and thousands of time series, eventually you're going to stumble upon some patterns which are purely accidental. Right, just like looking at the clouds and believing you see some kind of form, you know. And, um, so th this can actually happen. This is what I want to say. And uh, there was this argument by some by some uh, statisticians saying that this partly caused a crisis because you had people who were using these models and they were detecting all kinds of correlations in time series which uh, weren't there, and eventually this made the models weaker. Obviously, it's a bit more complicated because there are also some many other factors in play uh, around subprime mortgages, etc. But it just shows you that, you know, when, when you have domain knowledge about a, a, pro, like about a problem, it's clear that what, I'm, what they're suggesting that, you know, Nicolas Cage and, and uh, suicide or whatever is, is, are connected is, is, is clearly an insane proposition. 
But if you're talking about physical phenomena, financial time series, uh, it's just very difficult to, to, to have this kind of, of insight, you know, to know whether these correlations really exist. And medicine is, is like a prime example. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, I, think, I think many people can relate to this, like, you know, in medicine and also in, in things around medicine, like supplements and health and fitness, people have all these anecdotal stories, all these stats and all these weird correlations. Uh, and uh, it, it's very difficult to find out what's true and what's not, you know. <laughs> Nutrition is a field I, I like a lot very much. I think it's, it's very important. That, you know, every 10 years, they basically rewrite the book, I guess. <laughs> That's part of, because there are many issues with the methodology they're following. But how do you prove the negative? So it's easy to put the graph up of um, uh, suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation, and uh, U.S. spending on science, space, and technology. And uh, you can, I'm sure at some point there's been a congressional uh, hearing where uh, someone has tried to do that. But other than the fact that it's ludicrous, uh, is there any way, any way that you can scientifically prove that they're not related? Or is it just a matter of challenging it and uh, saying, well, show me why they're, they're, they're related? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, it's not easy. I mean, it's impossible uh, to, impossible. I mean, it's difficult to um, disconnect statistics and data science from um, uh, from domain knowledge, right? So you do need to have domain knowledge when you are uh, working with data science. So it's not, it's you can't really automate everything and say, I'm just gonna throw numbers into a machine and something will come out of it. Because data science statistics, they deal with models, and models are simplifications of the world, right? Um, and uh, I, when, when we started talking, I, I mentioned uh, that uh, I realized during my PhD days that uh, when I was working with Tottenham Hotspurs, that being a data scientist quite often is much more than just handling data, and you have to handle the culture. You have to, you need to have the the, the, the knowledge about the organization you you can, you're working for, etc. And uh, this just, you know, and, and you can't really separate these two elements, unless of course you are in some domains where, um, let's say, the the problem uh, stays stable, right? So, if, for example, your computer vision. Uh, you know that animals, humans, they more or less stay the same over over the millennia. <laughs> but uh, if you're talking about you know societies and anything where 
you know, you have multiple moving pieces, then it's, it's just tougher. Uh, I mean, then again, there are like various, you know, there, there are techniques around statistical significance, etc., to, to prove whether sometimes correlations exist or this or that. But, but you know, then it, then it gets very technical. Let's say if you, if you need to resort to super complicated arguments uh, and, you know, there's something that common sense says it's like, you know, quite, quite often, like, data follow common sense and domain knowledge. So if you have, like, data telling you that something which seems totally crazy is happening, then you need to re-examine your assumptions and then maybe find other ways to study it. I mean, one of the com- most common examples being this uh, this um, what, this paradox, I can't remember the name, um, with uh, mothers that are smoking and the babies, that says that... Uh, Mothers that are smoking, they have there's a smaller probability of the babies uh, uh, dying. Uh, I think the first year or something like this uh, from a serious disease. And essentially, what 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 I mean, there's like a probabilistic model which explains why this happens. But essentially, the the thing is that you have this model where you have either babies that have some kind of disease, and then you have some mothers that are smoking. And if a mother is smoking, it's it's unlikely that she's smoking and she also has the disease. So it was birth weight, low birth weight, yeah. So so if, so if for example, a baby is born with low birth weight and the mother is smoking, then essentially it was less unlikely for the ba- for the mother to be smoking and the baby to also have the disease. Yes. And uh, it's a bit of a complicated argument, but if you see like how the model breaks down and the equations, then it kind of makes sense. And But when you see this in real life, it looked as if smoking protects babies, you know, from <laughs> dying from some serious disease. Yeah. So this is what I was trying to get to. And it was really basically a side effect of how, you know, everything is organized. Got it. So you talk about data management in the book. Um, I think it's worth explaining to people what data management is. Could you do that? Uh, sure. So data management is uh, about creating a strategy yeah, and then following up with the strategy and uh, iterating upon it and improving it as to how you can collect data, store data, manipulate data in order to extract value for your business. And I'm talking about data management from a decision maker's perspective. I'm not talking about, you know, whether you should use MongoDB or some other database mm-hmm. because it's, uh, you know, because in my book, I want to take a decision maker's perspective and, you know, the, the, the technologies, they change all the time. So you have new databases and new trends and new versions, but the sound principles of data management do not really change. Okay? And I think the principles of data management are might be similar to principles in other areas of business. Uh, that's why I focus a lot on use cases and on checklists and um, um, things that someone needs to, to keep an eye on, like, for example, data quality, uh, whether you're collecting data with some particular use case in mind, which can guide you later on. Uh, essentially, uh, data management is a lot about avoiding the situation we talked about earlier, which is like, oh, I'm just going to collect data and, you know, I'll figure it out along the way, which is a bit, it's very simple for disaster, right? It's just like going to, to the gym and saying, oh, I'm going to work out and I'm just going to do random stuff and to eat random stuff and we'll just figure it out along the way, you know? <laughs> and then you wonder why you're not losing weight. Right. Uh, I also want to talk a bit about data quality. Those of us who spent time on the uh, data warehousing, uh, analytics uh, side know that uh, dirty data is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a very challenging problem. And I think there's a lot of tools that have been put in place to clean it up. But how do you keep data clean? Is there a, is there a formula for if, if a decision maker wants to 
to keep their data tidy, how can they do that? Um, so I think tidy data, I mean, there are a few different things someone can do. First of all is uh, try to document their approach, to document the what, what they're... Uh, Basically, where the data is coming from, where the variables represent, etc., which is, doesn't happen that often. Uh, data needs to be centralized in some manner, so you don't have different people, different groups having different data sets. That's very important. Uh, then it's very important, and finally, it's important to have a, some kind of standard uh, which, assi- which is going to assist with some kind of implementation. So uh, if, for example, you know that you want this data to build, let's say, a recommender system, then you're going to also start thinking about uh, what the variables should be look like, what variables you need, etc. If you just like storing data in an arbitrary way, then you'll end up in a situation where you're going to have to spend a significant amount of time in order to fix the problems with this data, right? Uh, and the, I think, yeah, these are the main points about the dirty and tidy data, at least the, the ones that come to my mind right now. Very good. And I thought it was interesting that you look at this subject also from an organizational perspective in terms of how to, how to hire and keep uh, good data scientists. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think uh, one key thing with data science uh, these, these days is that it's still in high demand, uh, high demand skill set, and pretty much like all workers in tech, right? And uh, you want to make sure that you uh, lay the foundation before you hire someone and you can also then keep them happy. So by laying the foundation, I mean that um, if, you, if you've taken the steps to build the right data strategy, if you've taken the steps to uh, you build a data strategy, you have the right culture, you have some interesting problems to solve, a data scientist will find this environment much more stimulating and rewarding rather than if you just have a bunch of data lying around and this person will have to spend six months fixing this data. Yeah, so that's, that's one. Um, and then I think, uh, so I'd say actually this, this is very important, maybe the most important factor compared to other tech workers because uh, you know, a developer might be called upon to build something from the ground up, but the data scientists, they, they don't really enjoy, for example, data manipulation that much. They enjoy the actual modeling part. Um, so that's why I've heard some like horror stories, like you know, companies hiring people, and two months later, these people basically resign because they have nothing to do. You know, there was no data, uh, and uh, then obviously, you know, there are other things which are pretty standard in tech now. We see lots of flexibly working, which I think COVID will will uh, help. Like ever post COVID, thinks that this is here to stay, uh, and uh, yeah, I guess these are the basics. You know, then it really depends uh, on the person. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one, one, if I could give one advice to a decision maker, be it a company owner or a manager or whatever, it would be, yeah, lay the foundation first, right? So don't just hire some very smart, motivated, highly paid professionals and expect them to do all like the difficult and boring work uh, because you didn't really take care of this earlier on. It's very easy for them to get demotivated and just find a better job. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a key competency uh, is actually uh, finding good ones and keeping uh, good data scientists. And I think uh, reading your book is uh, is going to be helpful in doing that. Well, I know you're super busy, so uh, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Um, and uh, I think it's really uh, one bit of data science that it's really well developed is the art of search engines. So what people need to do is uh, search for decision makers 
handbook to data science and they're going to find you and uh, and this book so uh, congrats well done and and thank you thank you yeah i was very happy to be here i was fascinated in your phd thesis on um soccer injuries i have to say soccer because i'm in the united states if i say football everyone's going to get the wrong impression but so you, you you work with Tottenham Hotspurs Spurs on uh, on on soccer injuries. How did you end up uh, with that brilliant idea, and how did you persuade them to work with you? Uh, so it was quite interesting because at that point in time um, there was uh, some awareness in the world of sports of what data science is and what it can do, and uh, they, I was actually offered a scholarship to study this very thing. Uh, and I guess uh, the team wanted to do this through a scholarship because uh, through through a university because they didn't really know where to start, right? So it was uh, <laughs> like a research project at that time, uh, and because this is what a PhD is, uh, so it's it was interesting because uh, sports at that time they were behind ten to fifteen years in terms of the technology they're using compared to other sectors which were way more mature in data science. Um, and yeah, it was, it was interesting partly because I, I got to uh, work a lot with uh, uh, many different stakeholders at that time. It made me realize how important the culture is within an organization um, because, uh, the, I mean, we, we, did, we did many things, but it, the most important thing, I guess, was the uh, culture change that, that was required to take place within the, the, the team. Um, the reason being that, um, you know, as a, as a PhD, you have to publish some uh, innovative research and you have to do new things and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, when you work with under a sponsor, when you work with, with an industrial sponsor, you also have to keep the sponsor happy. And I realized that uh, at least at the beginning, it wasn't so much about using sophisticated methods. It was more about building, uh, setting up the, the foundation, the groundwork for what was to come. And, this and, and you know actually my PhD years inspired some of my later work, which has been around data strategy and uh, data management and explaining data science to decision makers, uh, because it's, uh, it's it really if you if you want to use data science you need to start from the basics and it's not always the algorithms. Yeah, um, I, I I thought it was I noticed in your book uh, you uh, maybe uh, leverage some of that experience and. Uh, you were talking about the conflict of interest between the different stakeholders. You have the coaches that want to get the players back on the field, and you have the doctors that are trying to make sure that the the players uh, get well. Um, how how does that play out? Uh, what's the what are the uh, challenges that that misalignment uh, presents in terms of? Uh, the club and, and, and your work as a data scientist? Yeah, so that, that's a very interesting question because uh, one of the challenges was that uh, we had to lose a lot of time to understand what the data meant in each case. And my work as a data scientist, I realized that it was about data science. You know, <laughs> so it was more than, uh, you know, simply just getting a data set and then working with it. It was much more complicated <laughs> in a sense because you had to involve the human factor in politics in there. And uh, I quickly found out that uh, these problems, they repeat themselves in other sectors. Maybe not in the same context because um, sports is, you know, competitive by definition. 
but you do see these kind of issues like uh, politics and uh, misconceptions around around data. Uh, so yeah, this made me realize early on that data science is not necessarily about data in the real world. But, but how does it? How does that conflict of interest manifest itself in the data that you were looking at, or issues in the data that you're looking at? The the conflict between the coach and the and the medical practitioners. Yeah, so the medical practitioner uh, had um, was had had an incentive to make the injuries look more severe than they are when they were being recorded, and the coach was trying to do the opposite and put players back into play. Uh, which means that the suggested recovery times and the actual recovery times uh, were not um, you were not pure in a sense, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Uh, which means if you try to train a model on data that's not um, that's that's you know it's it's been labeled by human experts. Okay, it's been labeled by human experts, and uh, the experts that didn't really use their uh, their true judgment, then uh, you can't be sure as to what you're modeling exactly. Right. So in, in this scenario where we're talking about medicine and doctors and physiology and you know there's not going to be 100% agreement even um, even between experts, the ideal scenario would be to have three, four, five experts uh, give an estimate, give their opinion, and then average this. Yeah. But uh, here we had a very different dynamic. Yeah, I get it. So um, uh, to say, so your thesis is published online, but I'd be fascinated to get a kind of a summary from you on can a can you predict reliably uh, sports injuries using data science, and uh, you know what what were the kind of lessons learned? How and how did you even uh, how do how do you do it? Uh, uh, it seems like an almost impossible task. Yeah, it looks like if you have the right kinds of data, you can uh, predict overuse injuries to some extent, uh, because overuse injuries, they, I mean, they follow certain patterns, that's one. Secondly, overuse injuries, they also, uh, you can, like, as, as you record data, um, this can manifest, the injuries can manifest themselves in many ways, but sometimes, even if you don't record, uh, even if you only record, let's say, training sessions, uh, you can still um, get some, you know, some predictive power out of the relationship between the volume of the sessions over time and the probability of injury. Um, so it, it's 100% doable, but if you're talking about more acute injuries, that's, that's obviously nearly impossible, right? So we focused on, on overuse injuries, which is a common problem in professional sport. Like athletes, they, they push themselves too much. Yeah, and I think you use GPS, is that true? Uh, yeah, some GPS units which now are no longer in existence. It was called Viper, uh, and then it was acquired by another uh, company, I think. Uh, I'm, uh, or is it still around? I'm not 100% sure, because like there was at that point in time, there was like an explosion of devices for sports. Mm -hmm. I remember going to conferences and... It was like a very big trend, and, and then I think a few of these like merged, others sat down. Uh, but the idea is that you wear like a, a device around your chest, and then this can record using GPS many, many different uh, metrics. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think Viper GPS for sports exists anymore. Oh, I'm sure they're putting sensors all over the place on on, on athletes. But it, it, I mean, it's, to to me, uh, one of the takeaways which is kind of obvious when you think about it, is that 
people get injured when they're tired, they get tired when they're moving around. So was there some kind of correlation between uh, uh, length of play, uh, exertion and, uh, and injuries or? Yeah, absolutely, of course. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's common sense. So you, you expect to find this there. I mean, something else that's interesting is, is that some of the best players, they just don't get injured that much, you know? That's something else which um, many people don't realize. And that's actually for a sport, that the, the people who don't get injured much, they can just train longer, train harder, participate in more games, get more experience. Uh, so it's not just that... Uh, some, sometimes they're good simply because they don't get injured. So maybe part of being talented is also not really being very resilient again. That is fascinating. Uh, that is fascinating. Malcolm Gladwell, in one of his books, uh, I don't know whether you read this one, but he talks about the correlation between the month the athletes are born and their success. And it turns out if you're, you go to school, you're older, uh, you know, the difference between a, uh, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old is really significant. And so they tend to get picked more, so they get more experience and so they get better. And it's this kind of virtuous uh, cycle and you get your 10,000 hours and you become an expert because of that. But what you're saying, I think, is equally fascinating, which is actually a key competence for athletes, <laughs> is, is avoiding getting injured because you get more, not just... Obviously, no one wants to get injured, but it's not worth being brave because you get less playing time. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right. Uh, part of this sort of segment of the show where we actually talk to the experts, and I always find it fascinating. I end up talking to CEOs and uh, leaders in companies, and it's really interesting to hear a bit about them personally. But, um, you know, the, our way into that was talking about music uh, and the the three songs you would take on a, on a trip to Mars. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about that, but it's, first of all, is, is music important to you? Is that uh, a key part of your life? All the time. I really like music. I mean, I listen to music uh, when I work as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I also, um, I also like play the piano and I used to compose music as a hobby, but I don't have much time these days. So <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> I've given up on this. <laughs> Ah, very good. Uh, and, and did you play classically or, or were you kind of more contemporary stuff? Classical and jazz piano, yeah. All right. Uh, and, and so uh, I've given you this really challenging task, which is choosing three songs on a take on a very long trip, trip to Mars. Uh, what would those three songs be if you uh, had to choose just three? Yeah, that was a tough question. I didn't know what to choose. I'm like, probably I'm going to give you an answer now and tomorrow I might give you a different one. But I'd say, I mean, I would probably choose Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which doesn't classify as a song, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to it put counts. things there. Uh, then maybe, <laughs> thanks, then maybe I would choose something by the doors, like uh, probably something like Riders of the Storm, uh, and then I was trying to think of electronic track because I hear a lot of electronic music uh, when I work, uh, which this can mean pretty much anything. And um, I'd say something which is like not um, not electronic, but it's like instrumental. It's uh, it's a very interesting band. It's, it's like Kong by Bonobo. It's a it's sort of a, it's basically my favorite song to listen to when I wake up. <laughs> it just wakes me up. Do you know this song? 
I don't know it. No, uh, I, I know the Doors. Obviously, the Doors song. But uh, why did it, why did you, why did you choose that one? Yeah, it's just a great song to listen to when you, as soon as you wake up. Like uh, literally, it's like coffee. Okay, so with the with the Doors, I was just wondering if there was some uh, correlation between a time in your life or an incident or or anything. But uh... not necessarily. But I think it's one of those bands which is like very special. Like I mean, people can, can find something in the Doors in one way or another, like in in either part of their lives or. Um, I don't know, it's like, you know, it's one of those bands which I like to revisit every now and then, so maybe I don't listen to The Doors for a year, then suddenly I just listen only to The Doors for like two weeks for some reason, <laughs> so I can't really explain it, you know. I think also Nirvana are a lot like that for me, and the whole grunge yeah. scene, yeah. which doesn't exist anymore, but many of the songs of that scene are classics. Yeah, I got into The Doors after Apocalypse Now, I think it was the end in, uh, in there, it was amazing. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks for sharing a bit about your life, a bit about the music. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 